my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I believe the purpose-led business has to be more aspirational and bold in thinking than being driven by Excel sheets and numbers. If purpose-led businesses apply logic, then we don't go anywhere. The purpose-led business have to be driven by passion. Welcome to Calling Bullshit, the podcast about purpose washing, the gap between what companies say they stand for and what they actually do and what they would need to change to practice what they preach. I'm your host, Ty Montague, and I've spent over a decade helping companies define what they stand for, their purpose, and then help them to use that purpose to drive transformation throughout their business. In this special episode, we're sharing a positive case study where we talk with the CEO of a purpose-led company who we think is getting it right. Today, I'm speaking with Anil Kumar, CEO of Samonati. He shares how humble beginnings eventually led him to refinance his home in order to start what would become India's largest agricultural enterprise. Farming is a notoriously difficult profession, high risk and often low reward. Harvests are subject to unpredictable factors like climate and weather, and access to capital tends to be limited. And for families who grow and sell crops on a small scale, known as smallholder farmers, things get even more daunting. Their size prevents them from buying equipment in bulk, 
And when you're paying retail prices for seeds and fertilizer, machinery, and pesticides, things add up fast. Most don't even grow enough to make their money back. In India, a lot of people are familiar with this struggle. Agriculture supports roughly two-thirds of the 1.6 billion person population. And the majority of the growers are tenant farmers, meaning they don't even own the land they work on. You think it's hard to get a mortgage in the United States? Try getting a loan for a new tractor as a tenant farmer in India. Banks won't even consider you unless you own land. So many farmers buy supplies on credit, further raising their overall operating costs and squeezing their margins even more. To complicate matters further, often farmers are unbanked, which means even if they do receive a loan, they get the whole lump sum in cash. And when life happens, the money is used for other household needs. A lot of them wind up owing money that they can't pay back. This economic struggle for farmers can become overwhelming. In 2019, India saw an average of 28 farmer suicides a day. But one company is working to change this system from the inside. India's largest agritech enterprise, Samonadi. Their purpose is to create better markets for smallholder farmers across every state in India. They began pursuing this purpose in 2016 by issuing loans designed specifically for small farmers, but they soon realized they needed to be more involved to make a lasting impact. Today, the company acts as an intermediary between everyone in the agricultural ecosystem, banks, seed suppliers, wholesalers, and small farmers. Getting this all done is complicated, so Samonati takes a three-pronged approach. First, they focus on aggregation. They facilitate the formation of farmer-producer organizations, FPOs, or co-ops, where individual farmers with similar needs can use collective bargaining power to access better prices and better markets. Currently, Samonati has 4,000 FPOs in their network, each made up of roughly three to 500 individual farmers. Second, they facilitate market linkages, connecting farmers directly with the markets that will give them the highest prices or market share. They also lend farmers the money they need to get things done, offering multiple types of loans, all structured with farming households in mind. And third, they offer advisory services, helping their customers transition to more sustainable methods, create business plans, and implement standard operating procedures. They call their strategy AMLA, A-M-L-A, and it's highly effective. Today, Samonati is valued at north of a billion dollars and has touched the lives of seven million farmers and counting. Their current goal is to impact one in every four farmers across the entire country by 2027. The mastermind behind this organization is my guest today, Samonati CEO Anil Kumar. He tells us how they weave the needs of farmers directly into the fabric of everything they do and emphasizes the importance of leading with heart. 
A link to the transcript of the conversation you're about to hear is in our show notes or can also be found at callingbullshitpodcast.com. More with Anil Kumar right after the break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Folks, I am very excited to introduce the founder and CEO of Saunati, Anil Kumar. Anil, thank you for being here and welcome to Calling Bullshit. Thank you, Tai. It's my privilege as well to be part of this uh, program. So let's start right at the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about where you're from and what your life was like growing up in India? Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a small town boy, so to say. I'm born in a place called Kolar which is uh, known for its uh, gold fields and uh, brought up in uh, places that are close by called Anantapur and uh, Ballari. Both uh, belong to two different states. So Ballari is part of Karnataka and Anantapur is part of uh, Andhra Pradesh. So what that meant for me is I grew up in a confluence of two different uh, languages. Mm. Uh, Both became integral to my growing up. So schooling happened there and, and then uh, I joined mechanical engineering as a 18-year-old boy and during my plus two holidays, I had taken the banking services recruitment board exam and I was selected to a government bank called Canara Bank. So I, 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 I joined Canara Bank as a typist come clerk in a rural branch of Canara Bank and that's how my baptism into banking happened in the rural and agri space. Little did I realize what all would manifest over the next 30 years of my life in in banking, 
but uh, that's how my journey started as a professional. And just just to draw a line under something, because I found this very inspiring, you come from very humble beginnings, and you've come very far being the CEO of, you know, a, an extremely successful organization today. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what your experience was like growing up in a lower middle class Indian family. Well, we are a family of uh, six. I have three elder siblings, all sisters. And as a professional, uh, my father used to earn quite handsomely. But then when mm. I was eight, he lost his job and the family crash landed, so to say, on the economic ladder. And that's when my mother took over the charge of the house. And then she started building this entire family from the scratch. So I got to learn a lot in this transition of building, rebuilding, so to say, because people around us were all doing well. They were all neighbors when we were doing well. But, you know, when we were not doing well, my mother stitched the entire ecosystem to support our family through engagement with the community, her engagement with the neighbors. So I realized what is social capital. Each of our you know, sisters started working when they turned 18. Uh, but the entire family was pinning their hopes on me because I was the only male child in the family. And they wanted uh, me to, you know, to redeem the entire family. It was tough. There were days that I still remember where we did not have even a penny at home. And I, I made it a point to record that day in my head. And so then it sounds like you made your way into the banking business with a focus on agricultural banking or banking for the agricultural industry. Is that correct? Actually, no. I, I was posted in a rural branch, which meant it is agriculture and rural. But I was a typist come clerk, you know, and, and banks in India usually post youngsters in rural areas. I see. So it is my good fortune that my baptism into banking happened in an area that would become so relevant to my journey. I have an instinct that because of your background and because of your experience working in banking in a rural environment, you have an empathy for small family farmers in a way. In other words, you understand them and their lives better than a typical banking person would. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. In fact, one of the reasons why this entire space looks so home, natural for me is because I have been there. I have lived that life of, of challenges from access to markets and challenges that the external environment presents you on which you have, you have no control on. I have lived that for about 13 years of my, you know, my, my life from the age of say, seven to about 18, 11 years. Okay, so for listeners who, who might be unfamiliar with the agriculture industry in India, can you just paint a picture of what that industry looks like? What are the major challenges that Indian farmers face today? Well, uh, on the statistics dimension, Thai agriculture constitutes about 20% of the country's GDP. Right. While about 60% of the population is either directly or indirectly dependent on agriculture, which means there is a vast majority of population dependent on agriculture. In that, a significant portion is smallholder farmers, you know, farmers who are owning less than two hectares of land. Uh, and there is another 
large majority of people who take uh, land on lease uh, and are tenant farmers so if you combine the tenant farmers and you know smallholder farmers that constitutes about 80 to 85% of the total you know uh, total farmers into farming uh majority of uh, formal financial institutions are still not in the reach for the smallholder farmers mm. either on account of uh, not being able to fulfill the criteria that the smallholder farmers are supposed to for accessing the formal financial institutions or the definition of uh, a farmer is the one who owns land not necessarily the one who does farming and uh, this requirement of an ownership has fostered the fragmentation further uh, say if my father had 9 hectares of land and we are three brothers for for me to avail of a loan from a formal financial institution the land has to be in my name which means my father has to split this into three and give me the three hectares and if i happen if i happen to have another three boys i will have to split that into three so within two generations the 9 hectares will become one hectare right second from a sector perspective agriculture is a huge sector you know it's it's massive in terms of scale and scope so let us look at what are the major categories in agriculture you know you have inputs as a category where everything that goes into cultivation as a process this includes uh, the seeds includes crop protection chemicals and it, it includes the farm equipment now you have the output where the post harvest services happen whether it is sale or store and sell or store process and sell what what have you then you have financial services for this then you have the advisory services then you have the research institutions now if you look at each of them each of these categories are massive again you know the inputs have seeds double click on seeds then you have you know the genetically modified hybrid seeds then open pollinated seeds and you then double click on them you have individual companies around that right now on the crop protection chemicals you have fertilizers which facilitate the growth and you have you know pesticides and herbicides which kill they both are again two different categories you don't have the same company which works on both sides and double click on that then you have individual manufacturers for each of these products right farm equipment you have minor farm equipment and major you know major ones like tractor and a thresher and and these kind of things these are two different entities you know you have to click on that again all of these tie would want to reach out to the smallholder farmer on their own and this smallholder farmer has less than 2 hectares of land how do they engage now you know that was what inspired us to get into this collectivization which i will talk later but the context is smallholder farmer not being able to engage with the ecosystem on on the on the dimension of strength but on the dimension of being at the receiving end right so very fragmented very fragmented the market is fragmented land holding is fragmented so each of these again when a farmer goes to buy their inputs they have to go to the retail most part of the value chain because that's what he can afford or she can afford so the manufacturer dealer distributor retailer is where the farmer would go and when they buy their small quantities that price is loaded of all the you know layers of the the product moving in to the farmer provided the farmer has cash if it is on credit then the cost of credit also gets loaded on it mm. now then what happens soon after harvest most of these farmers on account of being smallholder farmers don't have the capability or infrastructure to 
to take the produce to larger markets to sell because you need to have a threshold volume of commodity. Right. Right. Because the cost of transportation would kill if you have a small quantum and you have to hire a large truck. So the local large farmers are local aggregators would basically buy out the produce from the farmers. They aggregate and then they take it to the next market to sell, which means there is hardly any scope for primary processing or storage because they need liquidity immediately. So if you just combine these two dimensions, I think farmer is the only person who buys retail, sells wholesale. Sells wholesale. Yeah, I think that's a great insight. Yeah, which is like the entire margin is squeezed. Yeah. Yeah, very tough. You hardly get anything for your for your output. So so let's let's pivot then to to Samanati. And again, just for listeners' benefit, what does the name Samanati mean? Samunati is a Sanskrit word. It's a combination of two words, you know, Sama and Unnati. Sama is collective, all encompassing, everyone. Unnati is growth, prosperity, and elevation. So the word Samunati means collective growth, collective prosperity, and collective elevation. It's a great name. So I'd love to hear the story of what made you decide to start it and a little bit about what Samunati does. So first I'll tell you what Samunati does and then you know come to you on how, how it happened because it, it happened accidentally, I would say. Samunati is a value chain enabler. It's an open agri network in the agri value chain space, engaging with the entire spectrum of agriculture players, starting from the input manufacturers to the farmer collectives, to the farmers, to the output aggregators, all the way to the large processors. You know, we are present in the entire value chain with a principal expectation and a vision that how do we make markets work for smallholder farmers? Because in the narrative that I gave you of how the markets are fragmented, most of these markets are working off the farmer. Can we change the narrative and bring in a dimension of making markets work for smallholder farmers? Right. The levers that we believe would facilitate this journey are, one, increasing the throughput in the agri-value chains. And also, how do we bring in the dimension of making the smallholder farmer access the larger agri-ecosystem and making the agri-ecosystem access the last mile through a digital connector that Samunath is building in. So there are three filters that we look at in terms of how do we engage with the players in the agriculture ecosystem. One is the vision of making markets work for smallholder farmers by making the agri-value chains operate at a higher equilibrium, at, you know, increasing the throughput with all the players, which also means we work with everyone. Right. And, and, and then thereby harmonize the engagement between the farmer and the agri-ecosystem. Right. These are the three things that we are uh, working towards. And, and at this point in time, we are present in about 23 states in the country on the FPO gateway that we have, which is the entry point for all the farmer collectives, uh, which are referred to as FPOs. We have about 4,000 such FPOs. And an FPO, could you could you unpack that for us? What is an FPO? Yeah, FPO is a farmer producer organization. It's like a cooperative. It's like a collective. Co-op, right. Right. It is member-owned, member-operated. And uh, about, you know, 300 to 500 farmers come together to be part of an FPO, to be part of a farmer collective. Now, that is where they unlock their collective bargaining power. Right. 
And that unlocking of collective bargaining power is how we engage with them in a framework that we refer to as AMLA approach, aggregation, market linkage and advisory services. And AMLA is also, Thai is also Indian gooseberry. It is the only fruit which has all the six tastes, including tart. Oh, that's very interesting. So the way we look at it is when a set of people doing the same economic activity come together, their requirements are homogeneous. Their requirements are similar. If 100 sugarcane farmers come together, their requirements are similar. When 300 paddy growing farmers come together, their requirements are similar in terms of what they need to buy and what services they need to access. Now, this aggregation is meaningful only when there are market linkages. Right? And the moment you bring in market linkages, two things would come into picture. One, your local retailer may not have the kind of quantity that you require at an aggregated level. And hence, as a FPO, as a collective, you may want to go one or two steps above. Right. Which also means that the cost of your procurement would come down because now you are you are jumping two, three levels above. Right. But what it also means is you need to have access to liquidity because in the retail most part, when you went as an individual farmer, you had that social capital to take inputs on credit. But now in, in, in the aggregated one, you are not an entity that is known. You are not an individual. It is a collective. And hence, you may not be able to get these inputs on credit. You have to put cash on the table. Right. This is another example, I think, of, of just real empathy, right? That a farm family is a family, not just a farmer. And so the way that the loans were structured in the past, I think you, you referred to something called a bullet loan that a traditional bank would make to a farmer. And there was downside to that form of, of loan. I wonder if you could just explain that, like sort of the way that you changed the way money is, is being made available to smallholder farmers. So there are two ways of engaging with the smallholder farmer. One is actor, which is the household in the farmer, and the activity, the farming, right? In, in, in agriculture, the actor and activity are intertwined. You know, they are two sides of the same coin. Yes. And you cannot delink yourself from the actor and engage only in the activity because it's a household enterprise. The entire household is engaged in the activity. Right. So the way most of the traditional lending models focus on is, hey, I would look at your activity in isolation and structure a loan or a financial product to, you know, to deliver for the activity and the actor will have to manage you know the actor's cash flows that household to suit the activities requirements now and two these are smaller loans and and there is also the provider's opex that comes into picture in terms of how do i engage on this product if you take farming as an activity the way cash flows accrue are you invest, 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 harvest. Right. In other words, you put smaller monies over a period and you get the entire return when you harvest. So the best way to engage in a financial structure for that is, you know, you disburse, disburse, disburse and ask for repayment. Right. That would mean multiple disbursements for a smaller loan, which means more OPEX on the provider side. So what providers usually do or used to do, now technology is helping them to structure it differently, is to give you know the entire money in one go and expect the smallholder farmer to keep aside the money 
and keep using it at regular intervals for the activity so that the provider's opex does not get inflated on account of multiple transactions for a small loan right but what happens in reality is given the multiple demands on the corpus it gets consumed for something else you know some other family need right okay and and it usually results in either they compromising on one or two steps in the cultivation or going for higher cost liquidity options yes take care of those one or two dimensions in cultivation both of which have a negative impact on the income because if you compromise on on one or two steps in the cultivation your yield gets you know reduced sure you know you you take higher cost borrowing then you have to repay that and your income gets reduced to that extent right so the best way to engage is engage with the actor as a household and then provide multiple requirements you know the household also requires insurance the household also requires you know liquidity support during cultivation the household also requires uh, you know other other financial products advisory services so on and so forth so you saw this problem and other problems like it and obviously you saw some kind of an opportunity but i'd just love to hear what made you decide to make the leap because becoming an entrepreneur is a non-trivial decision in one's career i realized the enormity of it now but when the decision was made it it felt natural i have never done farming but the way i took to agriculture was like fish taking to water so on a lighter note i keep telling maybe i would have been a cow or a buffalo in my previous life <laughs> that's why it is so natural or maybe i would have been a farmer if i can be gentle to myself <laughs> <laughs> very funny uh, so you know from canara bank i moved to icici bank and continued my studies and then within icici bank in 2004 i took a sabbatical went to manila to do my masters is when i got inspired by the financial inclusion and dr mohammed yunus's life and then i thought hey i have got so much of exposure god has been kind to give this exposure of the rural and agri to me why why don't i do something in agriculture is what made me to get into the rural micro banking and agri business group of icici bank i see two years in icici bank and then the bank deputed a new initiative called ifmr trust and i was given the responsibility of setting up a local financial institution model which designed and deployed an in-depth engagement with a household so this actor dimension the household dimension and as part of that engagement with the household through a branch led approach we used to do the asset liability income expenditure of the household in a scientific manner in a structure that is called wealth management approach for low income households mm-hmm. because usually wealth management is associated with people who have uh, who are wealthy right but one decision going wrong in the life of a low income household would 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 is mean is a disaster right so it is much more critical for them to manage their wealth and hence we as providers should have a framework of managing their wealth because a 200 dollar expenditure could be a rounding off error for a wealthy individual but this could be a life changing one they could push them into poverty back to poverty yes so that that is a kind of understanding of the household that we did for about seven and a half years where as a group ceo we had set up about 222 branches we had about 1100 people in this initiative we had 1.8 million insurance policies all of that mm. the fact end of this initiative i started realizing that while an in-depth understanding of the household is important the household is not operating in vacuum the household is operating in an ecosystem 
and that ecosystem is dependent on one or two major agri value chains so if you have to engage with the household in a constructive manner you have to go one or two levels above because a volatility of that value chain would have an impact on the household right household uh, incomes because they are intertwined there there is a positive correlation between both of them right is when the idea of samunati as a value chain enabler germinated that's when the idea came in and then i i i said why not i take a leap of faith because i have had the benefit of setting up an entity from scratch understand this space and my wife permitted me to take the entrepreneurial plunge so i took a loan on my house and my entire provident fund money from my previous employer and samunati started as as a as a journey as an entity as you rightly said it now i feel how did i make such a big leap of faith but at that point in time it felt natural it- natural that's great so when you talk about samanati and its purpose how do you talk about it how do you articulate the purpose of samanati so th- there are two dimensions of how you know we engage while the core purpose remains markets working for smallholder farmers you know mm. that is the you know the, the you know reason for our existence so we thought while our goal is to impact smallholder farmers the way to achieve it is through the value chains and so we engage with agri enterprises we engage with the, the processors we engage with the small time dealers distributors we engage all the way with you know multinational procurement agencies you know everyone we are working with the entire value chain right. and hence you also see in our in our numbers and balance sheet there is a significant portion that is with the agri enterprises not with the smallholder farmers not with their collectives but that that is the you know that is the highway that we are building so that we bring the demand side of the you know value chain towards the supply side right and how old is the company when did you found it it was founded in 2014 november 2014 is when we started our journey we got our first investor in 2015 uh so once we started lending that happened in may 2016 so i would say scaled operations happened from may 2016 onwards and within one and a half years of that we realized that in agriculture the best way to engage with the players is by being an internal player by being a partner not just being a lender on the fringes an internal player in the value chain is embedded in the activity you know is 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 part of the highs and lows of what happens in the value chain an external player in the value chain is someone who is sitting on the fringes on on the edges and takes collateral and you know property as as security to protect but is not part of the activity per se yes so we also looked at the entire informal markets in agriculture most of them are internal players the ones who are lending in agriculture were actually ones who are part of the agri ecosystem so that's when we got into market linkages and set up samunati agro as a subsidiary within one and a half years and our customers were talking about market linkages being equally important if not less you know in addition to the financial services finance is important but not sufficient finance is a lubricant it it can facilitate things happen it cannot be the you know end it is a means right market linkages are much more critical ah very interesting yeah and can you describe the dimensions of the business today how big have you grown so far so between both these engines we have done about 1.7 billion dollars of throughput wow uh, you know 
finance is about 60% of it the 40% is the commerce side and and the aspiration is how do we take it to about 15 billion dollars in the next 5 years wow that's incredible what we are also looking at is in these 4000 farmer collectives that we work with on the fpo gateway their collective membership is in the range of about 7 million smallholder farmers uh, yeah has about 100 million smallholder families so how can we touch one every four farming families in the next 5 years is the goal that we are pursuing so that we are about 25% of this cohort this universe and touching does not mean we lend to them or buy from them because at a collective level tie we also engage in their institution building we do their digitization we build their teams we train them on the business activity we we also conduct training programs for the ceos we we bring in the sops for the risk and audit framework all all these are not charged we do it from two dimensions because one dimension is as a lender i am as strong as my borrower right if the borrower is strong is when i get my money back second i can only grow if my partner is strong so by building capability in them as an institution their ability to grow gets accentuated and hence i will grow with them yes which is what collective growth is which is what samunnati is Yeah. When I hear you say those words, they sound extremely obvious, but it's also if you look around the business world, how rarely those words are practiced in business. It makes me reflect that if we could foster more of that kind of thinking in business, particularly in the states, the better off people would be because you know in and i know you know this in traditional capitalism it's very i guess the the phrase here would be dog eat dog or there are winners and losers and this idea of building an ecosystem where there is collective success is very rarely practiced i would say in traditional capitalism it it's, it's perhaps also a dimension of the sector where we are operating you know agriculture is humongously large uh mean a humongously large that we don't need to compete and if i can just borrow the phrase it's it's like a blue ocean you know you, you you are insignificant as a player in relation to the potential of the sector so i keep saying even after 5 years samunati from a quantum perspective 15 billion is still a rounding of error uh, that's why we also engage with large number of agri startups and ecosystem players because there is so much to do collectively we work with about 3 to 400 startups in in the agri space in terms of being their lender you know in terms of giving our distribution network to them for their proof of concept and then structuring their product for our customers whether it is quality assaying or whether it is storage or whether it is uh, drone monitoring or uh, satellite imagery what have you yes collaborate and collaborate i love that and so in the states my observation would be there used to be many many small family farms here also and we took a very different path it appears that we decided to actually aggregate at the ownership level and so there are these giant agriculture businesses these giant industrial farming operations in the states and i guess i have a couple of questions underneath that observation one is 
why has that not happened in India? In other words, it feels to me like you got to the market just in time to make sure that that actually, and your focus on helping small family farmers go it alone and continue to be independent has been a real aspect of your success. But has there been a movement to aggregate farmers to buy out, buy up all the farmers in India? The dimension of collectivization has been around for centuries in India. Time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The forms have changed, but the principle of collectivization has remained. I agree with you on the timing part because uh, a lot of things are coming together. One is the dimension of technology. India is a large country with a huge population and the majority of them you know, remote and infrastructure was a challenge. Now you see last, last you know, 10 years, the amount of development that has happened on the physical infrastructure like you know, roads and rails and, and transportation on the communication infrastructure in terms of the optic fiber and the wireless and most importantly the entire smartphone dimension where the tools that are required to bring markets and people closer are available now number one right right now number two we stumbled into this space in 2015 accidentally uh, you know into this FPO space, collectivization. You know. In 2019, the government made an announcement of setting up additional 10,000 new collectives as an initiative. And that gave a shot in the arm for the entire you know, ecosystem. Mm. Everybody started looking at how do we participate in this dimension. So the entire policy framework and the policy environment has, has got a huge fillip in the last 10 years. Uh, and, and one of the things that we are also witnessing here is the entrepreneurial energy. Many youngsters are now taking up to agri-startups and ag-tech companies and, and, and the entire startup world is abuzz with youngsters trying out uh, and every other day a unicorn germinating from this lot. Uh, then there is a lot that is happening, which was not the case, you know, about 30 years ago when, when I was a youngster. At that point in time, it was like you study to get a job and you settle down in a job and you don't take risk. Uh, the, the entire dimension on Maslow's hierarchy of needs is basic and safety. Uh, nobody looked at self-actualization and ego-center. The, the, the millennials are not that. You know, they, they are ready to explore. They are ready to take risk. So many things coming together for the Indian agriculture to unlock the potential. And given the compounded annual growth rate that we are witnessing, uh, agriculture would be a trillion-dollar dimension in, in India in the next five years. Mm. Imagine that. That would be fantastic. Two, from a food deficit nation as late as, you know, the late 60s, now India is actually exporter and the largest producer of several agri-products. You know, we are a surplus nation which also exports to many countries. And I certainly believe that we can work with many smaller countries which don't have landmass to cultivate, you know, for their food security. India can play that role, okay? So there is a lot that, that is coming together. There, there is a confluence of technology, private capital flowing in. Mind you, not all is being funded by grants and donations. You know, these are private capital flowing in and entrepreneurial spirit uh, backing the capital infusion. Mm. It's this wave. That's very inspiring. And uh, I hope we can uh, learn a bit from the Indian culture of cooperation and collaboration and also of your success at Samanadi here and apply some of that. How do you think about climate change 
and the potential effects of that on both the smallholder farmer and on your business? So it's it's a very important aspect that we cannot ignore anymore. It is moving from, I would say, an important bucket to the urgent bucket. Uh, yes. Something that needs attention. And, and one of my, uh, my key takeaways when I started working very closely with farmers is they are aware of what is sustainable agriculture time. But how, how can you handhold the transition from traditional farming methods which are not climate resilient or climate smart? Right. Fertilizers and pesticides. Fertilizer, pesticide, also, you know, flood irrigation to drip irrigation, you know, choices of crops, uh, monocrop to multiple crops, all of that. There is awareness. What they don't have is the handholding because the vulnerability of a failure would mean losing one season. That would mean, you know, family starving. So food on the table right. today to retaining that piece of land for the next generation, the, the choice is obvious. Yeah. So the way Samunati and you know some of us uh, who have been part of this journey believe is we have to convert this awareness into an action by handholding them and providing a safety net to them for the fall. We have to bring in the dimension of insurance. We have to bring in the dimension of market linkages and uh, the forward linkages in the agri-chain so that the farmer can can confidently walk. And uh, Sonati has taken baby steps in that. You know, we started working with Rabobank on a guarantee program along with uh, mm. USAID and USDFC on climate smart agriculture and agroforestry, where they provide a guarantee and we provide the market linkages and uh, finance. 15% of our overall engagement so far in this 1.5 billion has been climate smart compliant assets. Uh, we also have issued uh, green bonds now. And the idea is how can we bring in the dimension of green? And, and that again is a category. The, the moment you unwrap that, you have prevention of food loss as one efficient use of energy as the you know second one and responsible usage of you know pesticides and fertilizers or chemicals to retain the vitality of the soil. Well, retain the vitality is, is an aspiration, but how do we infuse life into the soil? Yes. And uh, we have a dedicated team of about 15 people working exclusively on that. So mm. it, it, it's, it's not uh, a good to have debate anymore. Climate patterns have changed. The rainfall patterns have changed. So we need to address it. Agreed. So I want to pivot and just talk a little bit about you as a leader and hopefully share some of your wisdom for entrepreneurs or other CEOs of even non-purpose-led businesses who are beginning that transition. So all purpose-led businesses tend to have or consider the needs of many more stakeholders than shareholders alone. And one of the things that I wondered about is how do you think about all of the stakeholders that you are serving at, at Samanati as the leader? And do any of those stakeholders' needs ever come into conflict? Right. So uh, I, I don't know if I have an advice for the new entrepreneurs, but all that I would say is I can share my journey, how, how that has been. Being led by heart has been a hallmark of you know, my journey so far when I look back. you know, As I mentioned, the decision of setting up Samunati by taking a loan on my house and my provident fund money at, at the age of 42 did not appear to be a crazy decision. <laughs> because everybody were 
were surprised that somebody is looking at lending to agriculture because lending in agriculture was considered to be an oxymoron <laughs> uh and then going back to my own life you know uh, leaving a government job and joining a private sector organization when i was doing well i left there and went to college uh, because i never had a college life i was a school dropout then from college dropout coming back and then being a you know founder of a, a you know financial inclusion initiative called ifmr trust and when i was a group ceo leaving that and setting up samunnati i think there is there is one significant you know factor that enabled this journey which is uh, the investment that i made in myself i i got into a system of meditation when i was 21 ah. that was in 1993 i stumbled into a system called heartfulness which is a, a 20 25 minute you know investment that i made every day in meditating on myself in terms of how do i you know build my life you know it was not about how do i become rich it was not about how do i compete with others at the cost of you know others this investment for about 30 years now has helped me immensely to decide things based on what the heart says not what the mind says because if i had done some financial calculation and analysis you know no no one would want to risk the entire family Uh, you know wealth so one thing that i certainly would tell the fellow entrepreneurs is when you are a purpose led business it is important that you are anchored inside and that it's important to have an investment in yourself so that you make right choices on the stakeholders dimension we have been fortunate to have an aligned set of people all through starting from elevar which believed in 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 the story of agriculture and not because somebody spoke to them they have invested in 2012 they actually went around seeing agriculture and the farmer collectivization and in 2015 when i spoke about collectivization it was not new to them you know they they knew the space and why this has so much of potential so an investor who understands the impact space is an important dimension mm. you know we got uh, axel we got responsibility we got uh, nuvin all of them fundamentally interested in impact from a scale dimension with the customer unambiguously being the one that we have to work with uh mm. these are not two different vehicles saying hey you do business but also take care of impact no you are in the business of impact and impact defined as who is your customer segment who do you work with yes and when that is clearly defined the scale happens because the primary customer segment that you are working with is the same for our you know customers you know the, the way we engage with our you know small holder farmers uh, in their collective we don't directly work with them we work always with their collective we don't take collaterals and we don't believe in collaterals when engaging with them there is a lot mm. of and the commitment to them is when you are united we are committed with you so mm. uh, lighter note i keep telling people that how do you lend so we say no we believe look into the eye lend and then pray right <laughs> <laughs> Well, it seems to have worked out so far. It seems yeah. to have worked out so far. The cost of risk in our business is about two percent. That's uh. it. Ninety-eight percent has come back. So prayers do work. But on, yes. a, on a on a on a serious note, the risk management philosophy in Samunati is: How do you address the risks of the customers? Yes. When their risk is addressed, is when my risk is addressed. And the risk of not having the institution capability to handle the business. is a risk to me so how do i address the business so the risk management philosophy for us is manage the risk of your client and hence your risk is 
automatically managed. So that's how we engage with the stakeholders. We have a wonderful team at Samunnati, about 700 people, you know, all aligned to the purpose. So every meeting that we have, whether it is a smaller important meeting or a town hall on Zoom these days with all 700 people, we start with what we call as a connection. We, we offer a, you know, a minute prayer, which basically says, all of us pray that whatever we discuss, whatever we do, we do for the larger good of the humanity. That is a ritual. Uh, nothing to do with any particular form of faith or religion or caste. Those reiterations help us ground it. I love that answer. And um, it also gives me a, a little view into the culture at Samanadi, which I appreciate. Do you think that being purpose-led as a, as a for-profit business means that you have to have more modest financial goals as a business? Actually, no. If you see the the, the audacity with which we are talking about numbers, I, I believe the purpose-led business has to be more aspirational and bold in thinking than being driven by Excel sheets and numbers. If purpose-led businesses apply logic, then we don't go anywhere. The purpose-led business have to be have to be driven by passion, and passion, in my view, is not is not limited by numbers. <laughs> That's that's a beautiful answer. I love it. Okay, so my last question for you today, sadly, because I'm so enjoying this conversation, but but I realize that you have a business to run and a life to lead. So on Calling BS, on this show, we define BS as the gap between word and deed. And we have a tool called the BS Scale where we rate organizations zero being the best, zero BS, and 100 being the worst, total BS. And taking into consideration the fact that no business is perfect, right? Every business is on a journey. Where would you rate Samanadi on that scale today? I, I, I would hazard a guess. I would say about 30. We have covered significant distance in terms of what we have to pursue. There is yeah. of direction. Then there is scale that we have demonstrated. The, the team is in place. The, the, the tools that we have to impact are all in place. But it is still a journey. And this is a moving post. You know, uh, after five years, if we talk, you know, I would still say we are still about 30. Right? So that aspiration would have changed because we are looking at farmer as an actor. I would say in, in activity, we have we are zero, but you know, still the, the household needs to be impacted. So I will still have about, 30, I would say about 30. Yeah, you may be even being a little hard on yourself, which is totally, totally fine. But you've certainly proven the model and it's incredibly impressive what you've achieved. So thank you for being on the show today and thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, it has been a pleasure to uh, spend time with you. Thank you, Ty. It has been my privilege to have interacted with you and shared my journey. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, folks, it's time to give Samanadi a BS score. The company's purpose impacts millions of people in a positive way. Samanadi looks beyond their immediate customers. They exist to change the entire agricultural ecosystem, which makes things better for everyone. It's an enormous job, full of ambition, and the vast scale of their aspiration is evident in the score of 30 that Anil gave himself. 
That score shows just how much more potential he feels there is yet to fulfill. But I think a lower score is fairer in this case, not because there isn't upside for Samanadi, but because I think their words align so well with their deeds that they just deserve a better score. So I'm going to cut Anil's score in half and give Samanadi an extremely impressive 15. And if you're starting a purpose-led business, or if you're thinking about beginning the journey of transformation to become one, here are three things you can take away from this episode. One, lead with your heart. Empathy and understanding for all of your stakeholders is a key aspect of building a successful purpose-led business. Empathy doesn't appear in a lot of MBA programs, and it's hard to find in a spreadsheet. And yet, it is the secret sauce that is driving the success of conscious capitalism. Two, pick a problem you understand and really care about. Anil's humble beginnings in India gave him a unique perspective on the plight of smallholder farmers, one that traditional bankers couldn't see or understand. Your personal experiences and struggles are where you may find your own purpose-led unicorn. Three, it's not a zero-sum game. The best purpose-led businesses don't create winners and losers. They create win-win-win scenarios in which a complex web of stakeholders improve each other's lives and finances. They create Samanadi, you know, collective progress. I want to thank our guest today, Anil Kumar, the team at Samanadi, and the team at Elevar Equity for helping to make this episode possible. And if today's episode inspired you to lift up our ecosystem, subscribe to the Calling Bullshit podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to people speak into your ears. And friends, I'd like to ask for your help. If you enjoy the Calling Bullshit podcast, Take a second to rate us on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred platform. It helps more listeners find the show. And thanks to our production team, Hannah Beal, Amanda Ginsberg, D.S. Moss, Haley Pascalides, Parker Silzer, and Basil Soper. Calling Bullshit was created by Co-Collective and is hosted by me, Ty Montague. Thanks for listening.